This week on Writers, Inc. Well, I knew that I was going to have to make that choice. And it was just a matter of realizing, you know, I wasn't going to live forever. So, and then making the choice. And that's another thing that Workshop does, is it validates your choice by putting you together with other people who have more or less made that same choice. And you all validate the, uh, you know, the activity for each other. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writers Inc. All right, welcome back to another episode of Writers Inc. How you doing, JD? Dude, we are all still sick over at my oh, house. Oh, still. So yeah, it's actually gotten worse because my my daughter, she's got something called um, hand, foot, and mouth disease. Yes. Have you heard of this? Yeah, my kids had no. that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, apparently it's like really common. Um, it, it looks like the end of the world. Yes. Their face is like covered in the, these, you know, marks where, you know, like CDC is going to come busting down through the door. Especially yes. It looks scary when you first see it. Yeah. So I guess that's what she had um, last week when we talked, but she was like the very beginning of it. And she must have got it. I've been trying to figure out where she, where she got it. And the only thing I could think of is she went to the pediatric, um, her doctor, to get her um, uh, chickenpox vaccine. Yeah. It, I'm guessing that lobby is, is probably just a complete cesspool of, you know, various kid diseases. Yeah. <laughs> illnesses so I'm, I'm guessing that's where it came from but she's um I, we're, we're hoping she's getting better i think she's like turned the corner like last night good uh, but like my wife just sent me a, a quick text because we've got a science center like a marine science center right down the street from us and she loves to go there because there's like fish tanks and you know like all kinds of cool stuff to play with and she just like took my wife's laptop and closed it and said, all done mama. And like took her by the hand, walked her all the way to the front door, you know, pointed up at her coat. She's like red coat science center. <laughs> and like, we, we can't take her anywhere because she looks like she's got bubonic plague. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> we can't, can't take her outside the house. Um, what, what else is going on? Oh, it's been a big week for ARCs. So we've got video here. Nobody else can see what's going on, but I'll, I'll hold them up for you. So I've got, I got Riley Sager's new book. Nice. This came um, home before dark which looks awesome i love a good scary book yep um got kathy wright's new book yep i got kathy's too yeah this this one came in last night and i was doing a little happy dance oh nice yeah yeah the, the brand new stephen king if it bleeds um advanced uncorrected proof like this is just the coolest thing just because it looks so minimal it looks like he printed it off his computer it does yeah <laughs> but it, it came from the publisher um but i'm really looking forward to this because it's his short stories are, are some of his best work um and this is a collection of novellas yes um and, and rich chismar he, he's been uh, chatting it up on, on twitter and some of the other places just talking about it as he went through it and it's i was really looking forward to reading this i was really glad that it came in uh, but i gotta knock out riley's first so i'm gonna try and read riley's and hopefully get knocked that out this weekend and, and dig into that. But yeah, big week for ARCs for sure. Nice. What, what's going on with you? 
Um, I got a, a new book coming out, uh, a, a story methodology book. Uh, it's called Three Story Method. Zach and I have been working on it for a number of years, and uh, that's coming out this week. So it's just been a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff of like uh, we're publishing it wide. So it's like Amazon, Publish Drive, Kobo, Draft to Digital, Ingram Spark, Find Away Voices for Audio, like managing all the, the dashboards. You know, it's, it's a bit overwhelming at times, but it's kind of fun too. Yeah, I get that question a lot, you know, like whether you should go wide or just do Amazon. And um, honestly, I mean, with fiction stuff, I do really well with Kindle Unlimited. Um, so I, I've pulled a lot of the eBooks back um, and, and just done that. But this is a nonfiction book, so that makes a lot of sense. Ingram is actually doing something really cool. I don't know if, if, if they sent this out to everybody or if it's a beta thing, uh, but you can do hardcovers with them now, and they'll actually print your cover on the hardcover itself. Yes. So instead of, you know, just having a slip jacket, you've got you know, your, your actual cover on, on there. Um, so I'm actually doing that with, um, she has a broken thing where her heart should be, um, which you know, comes out at the end of March. That's going to be the first time I've ever done that with them, but that looks really cool. So I'm hoping that that's something they stick with. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you, uh, have dabbled with the Google play books at all, but, uh, they are really making a play at the ebook market. And I've been c talking to some of the people over at Google play and they've revamped the dashboard. They've made it super easy to get in and, uh, you can get your books uploaded and onto Google play in a matter of minutes. Now, have you experimented with that at all yet? I, I did uh, a couple of years back when yeah. Forsaken first came out. Um, I was, I think it was actually part of a beta program that they did and they, they seemed to kind of drop the ball a little bit yep. um, and let it slide. And it, it's driven, it's driven me nuts for years because they're probably one of the few people that could really get out there and give Amazon, Amazon a little run for their yes, money. Yes, agreed. Um, so, so I'm hoping that they're, they're stepping up with this. Um, I've, I've heard that they're putting a lot of support behind it, um, but I've also heard that it's clunky. Um, so we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, Kobo is, is still a, a giant. A lot of people don't realize that, but uh, outside of the U S they're, they're still one of the biggest players out there. Um, you know, here in the U S again, it's, it's Amazon. Um, I get a lot of emails from people that, um, they're, you know, very dedicated Apple fans and they want their, their books on iBooks. Um, and that's probably, you know, if, if you don't go wide, if you're strictly on Amazon and Kindle, um, yeah, that's, that's the only other place where I seem to get hurt in the U S people, you know, like they don't want to, you know, because you get broke to that, that Apple ecosystem and like sure. you don't want to use other products. Um, and you know, I, iBooks is actually a very you know, nice interface. It's, it's really cool, but it's, you know, the same kind of thing as, as Google, you know, like they just, they haven't really put the, the manpower behind it or, you know, it's, it's always, it comes across like an afterthought. Like, oh, we should be in this market. Let's go ahead and, you know, put, put Bob on it. Right. You know, they, they, they throw it off in a corner somewhere and send, you know, throw some money at it and hope that it works out well, but they don't seem to put a whole lot of thought behind it. Yeah. And um, if you're but, not in the Apple ecosystem, uh, draft to digital is a great third party aggregator that will distribute you to other places. And that's how I get to the, uh, the iTunes market is through draft to digital and it's super easy. Cause I don't, I don't have a Mac. So, uh, it would be hard for me to get into iBooks, I think. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that Google pulls something off here and they, they give Amazon a little competition. Yeah, it seems like they're going to make a go at them. So uh, I'm all for the competition. Cool. Well, good luck with the new book. Thanks, man. Thanks. Hey, um, I wanted to follow up with you. We had a, a listener question and I vaguely remember us talking about it, but it had something to do with claiming your name on Alexa. And I was wondering if you could maybe uh, revisit that if you remember what we were talking about. Yeah, so it, it's kind of wild west with um with this stuff, and, and you know it's not just the the Amazon Echoes. You've got you know Google's got their own. Um, you know, there's everybody's trying to come out. You know, Apple's got one too. Um, these various uh, you know devices, um, but basically claiming your name on it. So in this case, you know, I've got one sitting on my desk because she's gonna start talking to me. But if I say Alexa, who is JD Barker? You know, she'll start rambling. 
Usually. <laughs> <laughs> the, one, the one time I need it to work, it doesn't work. It happened off the air like 10 minutes yeah, ago. <laughs> yeah, I, I do it all the time to pump my ego up a little bit. I ask her and she starts rattling it off. And it looks like it just goes out to Wikipedia and it reads whatever you've got there. Okay. Um, but, but the thing is, you have to grab that name. So initially, you know, there was no J.D. Barker in, in, in that particular database that they used for that. Um, so it defaulted back to a baseball player that had a similar name. Um, so you can go on your phone after you, you know, request that if you get the wrong answer and you can basically open a support ticket with uh, Amazon and say, Hey, well, I requested this or asked her this question and she responded with this, which was incorrect. And this is what she should have done. And once you create that support ticket, they'll go out there and they actually program it into their database. Um, so now if I, you know, ask her who JD Barker is, or if a listener does, it's, it's going to pull up my Wikipedia page. And once that's hard coded, it doesn't go anywhere. Um, so you kind of claim it, you know, it's, it's like getting a URL for your, your domain name back in, you know, like the early nineties. Um, who knows if it's going to stick or not, but anytime a new system like this comes out, I always try to you know, at least get my username, even if I don't use it. Um, you know, Snapchat, TikTok, all these different services that come out. I always try to at least get my username because you never know what's going to take off. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. So it's as simple as, uh, as a support ticket through, through Amazon. And that's how you get that started. Yeah, start to finish, it probably took about a month because um, they're not real quick on on the replies. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's not a real difficult thing to do. You just have to be the first. All right, cool. All right, well that's uh, that that's good info. So uh, are we ready ready to introduce our guest this week? Yeah, and I'm gonna let you say his last name because <laughs> I've always called him Chuck. Um, I, <laughs> I am terrible when it comes to pronouncing names, and I don't want to butcher this guy's name because he's a bit of a legend. So. He is, and I had to spell it phonetically in my notes when I was talking to him. <laughs> <laughs> this is Chuck Polinick, uh, the author of Fight Club and Guts and many other great stories, uh, an iconic American writer, um, high, highly fascinating guy, and uh, was really excited to get to talk to him. Um, I heard him on James Altucher not too long ago. He was been on Joe Rogan's podcast, and uh, he just came out with a new writing book, which is uh, one of the reasons why we were talking to him. I happened to be reading it as the as the communications were coming through, and you were like, "Hey, you want to get Chuck on the show?" And I was like, "Absolutely!" <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Chuck Polnick's coming on today. All right. Well, I can't wait to hear this one. I mean, he's, he's been you know, like I said, he's a legend. He's been around forever. Fight Club is is one of my favorite books. Yep, same here. Uh, even better than the movie, and I don't say that very often. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's 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 one of those. You know, if, if you've only seen the movie, you definitely need to go back and read the book. And and the twist that he's got in the, in that story, just the way that he weaved it through from start to finish, you know, it's just one of those aha moments. It's it's just so cleverly done, and and you don't realize that he did it. Um, and you know, it's 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 a learning tool for sure. Yeah, excellent. Well, why don't we get into it, and then we'll come back on the flip side and uh, talk about some takeaways. All right, here he is. Consider this, Moments in My Writing Life After Which Everything Was Different, uh, is your brand new writing book. I devoured it in one sitting. I'm so excited to talk to you about it. Uh, I'd like to know first, though, uh, how long had you been working on this particular book? You know, it's hard to say because it, it includes anecdotes and, uh, and experiences from really even the 1980s the very first writing group I ever belonged to. So it goes back as far as 1988. Mm, wow. Uh, and you had been uh, <laughs> gently removed from a few writing groups uh, over the years. Uh, that, that one in 1980, was that one you, were, you left? The one in uh, 
uh, it was uh, I was in one from 1988 until 1990, and it was in 1990 when uh, the group leader finally said that nobody felt safe, or a lot of the writers didn't feel safe around me anymore. But she also suggested joining Tom's group, and that's where my writing career really started in 1990 with Tom Spanbauer. Yes, yes, we're definitely going to uh, talk about him today as well. Uh, I'd like to uh, maybe get some uh, your opinion on this repeating chorus idea, which was a, a fa- fascinating concept that you talked about in the book, and with Fight Club being you know an incredible example. And, uh, and, and the one in the new book is If You Were My Student. And I was uh, hoping you could maybe elaborate a little bit on why you chose that as a re- repeating chorus for this book. Well, you know, it's just one of, uh, there are several choruses, and one, the other one is uh, um, May One of Your Many Graves Always Be in My Head. Um, just ways of sort of formally, ritually uh, completing um, lines of thought that otherwise really can't come to a, any kind of a great, perfect epiphany. You know, how do you complete that thought that, that really can't be completed? And how do you move forward from that moment that, you know, that can't be surpassed? And I also talk about that in the book, how so many different cultures have these little phrases that you say when conversation falls to silence so that someone can introduce a new topic. And so having something like that or like a chorus, it, uh, it reestablishes the past. It reminds people of their, their common history together. Uh, but it also kind of declares an impasse and allows a brand new topic to be introduced. Um, I, I use it with the, the rules in Fight Club. Uh, I use it uh, in almost every book I've, I've written. Yeah, and I, I think, too... Uh the way you, the way I interpret it is also sort of a connective tissue. It's, it seems to be a way of transitioning, uh, maybe like, uh, from a story beat to another story beat or from a scene to a scene. Can it be used in that way as well? Yeah, that's, that's the point I was just trying to make. Yeah. Um, very much like, uh, Kurt Vonnegut saying, so it goes, um, in Slaughterhouse five. I think that's probably where I picked it up. Right. Right. Yes. Um, yeah, excellent. Uh, another uh, element in in the book that I found fascinating uh, was this idea of uh, dead parents <laughs> and and how you should kill your protagonist's parents, one, at least one of them. Could you uh, talk about that for a minute? Well, for years I've always been fascinated by this uh, this complaint that Disney has too much uh, has too many dead mothers, that too many Disney narratives open with a dead mother. And the more I paid attention, uh, and the more I saw that at least as many narratives had dead fathers, and a lot of narratives had both parents dead. And so when I started to go through the popular television series of my childhood and the popular movies of my childhood and adolescence, I saw that so many of them had either a dead mother or a dead father or both parents had been dead. And it brought me to the, the idea that, that this is really a way of um, mainlining right to a child's heart, that if you show them a child who has endured the child's worst fear, the loss of a parent or the loss of both parents, then 
the witnessing child, the audience, is really going to automatically care for, feel sympathy for, uh, and respect the child that they have seen, that they are seeing, who has experienced their worst fear. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's It seems to be creating an emotional a- attachment to a character quite early on. And another really smart way of doing that is to give us a character who seems to be, you know, have everything going for them, but is uh, deluded over one very obvious thing. And my favorite example is, uh, is what is the first thing that Scarlett O'Hara says in Gone with the Wind? Can you think of it? It's been the a first long thing time. She says to the, <laughs> the Tarleton boys right there on the steps of Tara. She ah. says, there is not going to be any war. I'm sick of all this war talk. It's ruining all the barbecues. And the moment she says, there's not going to be any war, we all know, oh my gosh, this poor deluded thing, despite her youth and her vitality and her charm and her wealth and her station in life, we are smarter than her because we know that there's going to be a war. And it makes us automatically kind of adopt her as our child. We instantly want to care for her. We want to make sure she's going to be okay because we feel superior to her. So that's another way of kind of doing that dead parent thing Mm. and making the audience instantly emotionally sympathetic with a character. Right. And that was very similar to the anecdote that you told about your friend's daughter and her first menstruation. Is that the same approach there? I love that story. I do too. (laughs) (laughs) Would you mind telling it? It's fantastic. (laughs) A friend of mine has this incredibly bright, bright, beautiful, talented daughter. And recently uh, her, this daughter got her first, uh, her first period, uh, was it the medical term is menarch? And so. after they went through the drama, uh, did the, they, they got through the drama of dealing with his first uh, menstruation. And, and everyone's upset about, you know, the fact that this child is growing up. This little girl turned to her mother and said, completely honestly uh, and exhausted, said, I am so glad that oh, that's, only going to happen once a year. <laughs> and her mother was just heartbroken because she knew that she was going to have to tell her daughter, you know, that's really not the case. <laughs> but in those moments, there's such a sweetness in those moments when someone gets something really intrinsic wrong. We, we, we feel for them. Very much so. It's, it's so endearing. You, you want to, you want to virtually put your arm around that person and kind of help them out uh, in a very innocent way of doing it. I, I love that story too. Thanks for sharing that. And it is a really fast, effective way of bringing your reader, you know, going right to the heart of your reader. So your reader instantly, instantly adopts that character. Right. Right. Uh, one of the, other things that I know you value or have valued very much is, is workshop. And we talked a little bit about that in the beginning, but uh, 
I'm wondering what your what your opinion is now on workshop and censorship and sort of sensitivity and uh, maybe maybe um, best approaches for writers who want to be vulnerable and transparent and honest, but feel a pressure to maybe not offend their fellow writers. Hmm. And just a couple notes on that. Um, I was with more or less the same workshop. Uh, we were, most of us were originally Tom Spanbauer's students, but uh, we eventually left Tom's workshop to make room for new students uh, who wanted to study with him. And we continued to meet ourselves and use Tom's distinctions. Uh, we met from probably the early 90s until just a, a year ago. But about a year ago, some members started to insist that other members not use certain words or that they take certain philosophical standpoints in their work. And this kind of ongoing censorship uh, is what destroyed the workshop. Eventually, you know, people found themselves with no freedom to explore ideas other than what was kind of decreed as, you know, correct places to go. Uh, and, and so workshop just fell apart. People no longer had any kind of fun or freedom there. So that workshop that really survived for almost 30 years doesn't exist anymore because of that kind of censorship. Wow. Uh, it's a tragedy, but, you know, nothing lasts forever. On the other hand, I've always thought that since 9-11, you know, not with 9-11, transgressive fiction kind of fell out of favor because suddenly everything transgressive, uh, whether it's a monkey wrench gang or... Um, American Psycho or Train Spotting or Fight Club, suddenly it all looked a little terroristy. And so transgressive fiction disappeared. But in its place, we got horror fiction. And it really became a time of, you know, people had to veil their messages within a genre. And it's very much like what happened in the late 60s going into the 70s. Because with the Manson murders, you can no longer really present uh, transgressive fiction. And so things went right into horror. Uh, they were already tipping in that direction with Rosemary's Baby. But, you know, they went full tilt with The Exorcist and, and all those 1970s movies. So I think a certain amount of censorship is creative because it does allow people, you know, it does force people, writers, to veil their message. So their message has to be uh, a little more uh, indirect, but just as effective. Mm. Do you think uh, you would have written guts the same way today than you, than you would have uh, 15 years ago? You know, the problem is I couldn't have written it 15 years ago. I don't think I would have been uh, brave or foolhardy enough to do it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's the, the glory is as you grow older, you realize you have less and less to lose and, uh, and that uh, there's less to keep you from going to those really outrageous places. Right. Yeah. You, uh, you're one of the few authors I've heard talk about cognitive reframing in a very substantial way. And, uh, 
I was wondering if maybe you could tell your Winona Ryder story, because I think that's a great way of exemplifying how you approach cognitive reframing. Oh, dear God. I can't remember my Winona Ryder story. <laughs> this was with your dad uh, before he passed. Oh, no. Oh, my poor dad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My father, it was when, uh, when they were first talking about making the Fight Club movie, and they were talking about casting uh, the role of Marla Singer. And my father was so taken with the book. Suddenly my father and I had this common ground because he thought the book was about his father. And, uh, and I wasn't going to break his heart by saying, no, it's, it's about you, dad. <laughs> so we did. we did. We had this place to meet. He was so proud of this book. And when they were talking about a movie, he instantly thought of Winona Ryder because physically she seemed to embody that, uh, the physicality of the Marla Singer character. And my father, uh, who was always a ladies' man, started talking about, you know, is there any chance you're going to introduce me to Winona Ryder? Uh, I'd really like to meet her. That would be, uh, that would really be something, you know, how about introducing the old man to Winona Ryder? <laughs> And I was just terrified that somehow my father was going to be on location and he was going to hit on Winona Ryder. <laughs> and it was going to be an ugly scene with my father putting the moves on Winona Ryder. And that became this big, dark fear in my life. And so, you know, God bless him, when my father was murdered, one of my first odd you know, uh, inappropriate reactions was this huge relief that at least he wasn't going to be putting the moves on the Rider. <laughs> uh, oh. and, and that's another interesting, that's another interesting source for uh, humor is always the socially inappropriate reaction when something is presented that is that carries and should carry enormous emotional psychological weight, and the other characters fail to react or react in a way that kind of completely negates the drama, then it gets a laugh because you have you've removed the drama, you've negated the drama so quickly that the relief that results, you know, brings a laugh, and I'm always fascinated by that. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, you, you've spoken too about, you had a similar situation when your mom was sick and you, and I think you said Nora Ephron had kind of talked about it too, where you have this, uh, you, you have this cognitive reframing about what your mother's passing is going to mean to you personally and, and how that can be socially awkward when you verbalize it. Right. And, and Nora Ephron never really wrote about it, but she did allude to it this kind of feeling that in writing about the uh, Barbara Howard uh, autobiography in the 1970s, Barbara Howard made this passing remark that it was only upon the death of her mother that Barbara herself ever felt completely free and independent in the world. And it was something that Nora Ephron had wished that Barbara Howard had written about more extensively because later Nora herself, when her mother was dying, she felt that same kind of hidden glee, that same kind of suppressed feeling that it's only with the death of both of our parents 
that we ever really feel like we come into a kind of fully fledged independence and adulthood. Right. Yeah. I I can, uh, I can definitely understand that. Uh, I, uh, I, I'm curious as to the, the concept of minimalism that is very prevalent in your writing. Do you apply those concepts to your everyday life? And if so, how do you do that? Um, I'm not sure how the, the concepts would apply other than maybe I am uh, just rigorous about uh, uh, excluding things from my everyday life. Oh. Um, and it really goes back to when I first started to write seriously. And I looked at the opportunity cost of everything. So many of my friends wanted to be they wanted to be writers and they wanted to be painters. And they wanted to compete athletically and they wanted to do everything. And they wanted to have a family and they wanted to have a career. And they just were just constantly sort of gadflies jumping from one thing to another. And I could see that they weren't going to get anywhere very far with any one thing. So I had decided that if I was going to sacrifice my life to something, uh, it was going to be to writing and that I was going to give up everything else, sort of abandon, you know, and trying to accomplish anything else if I could, you know, just write. So it was that, that complete dedication to this one field. Um, you know, and of course I paid the bills and I maintained my closest relationships and I met my social obligations. But really, I wasn't going to be a potter. I wasn't going to be a painter. I wasn't going to do anything else but write. Uh, you knew that pretty early on? Well, I knew that I was going to have to make that choice. And it was just a matter of, of realizing, you know, I wasn't going to live forever. So, and then making the choice. And that's another thing that Workshop does is it validates your choice by putting you together with other people who have more or less made that same choice. And you all validate the, uh, you know, the activity for each other. Right, right. Excellent. Well, as uh, kind of kind of bring the conversation to a close, I, I have one question for you. Um, you can answer it however, however you like, but you've been in, the, in this industry for a long time. Uh, where do you see the publishing industry headed in the next, say, five to ten years? Hmm. That's interesting because uh, just looking at things, I see that coffee table books, books that are incredibly beautiful, high product, high production objects, that that market is exploding. That if if a book is gorgeous and expensive, there is a demand for it. On the other hand, if a book is an ebook, it's there's also a demand for it. The place where the demand seems to be falling, you know, cratering, is for cheap, expensive, hardcover books. So I see books either becoming these four hundred, five hundred dollar things, or becoming these ninety nine cent things. That the whole middle ground seems to be disappearing. And on the other hand. I kind of see an explosion in writing itself that in the same way that the technology has enabled people to 
create movies and then get distribution online. Uh, we're going to see people wanting to write their own books, people who are tired of just buying their culture. And those people are going to be needing some coaching and some skills. Um, another reason for writing the writing book uh, is I think there's going to be a kind of a demand for teaching in the arts that's not necessarily tied to a $120,000 MFA program. Right. And uh, people have the technology to distribute their work, but I think they're going to want better skills to produce better work. All right, Chuck Polinick, what'd you think, JD? Well, he kind of had me at none of the writers felt safe around me <laughs> <laughs> in his writers group. Um, I, I had an, I, I never heard any of these stories before. Like, I, I knew he was in a writers group with Chelsea Kane out in Portland. Um, I'm a huge Chelsea Kane fan. She's she's got um, a, a series of, of detective novels that are phenomenal. Um, and and then and I think at the end of the very first one at the audio book, there's an interview where he actually interviews her. Um, and that's where I realized they were actually part of the same group. Um, but yeah, when he said that, like I and, and you had mentioned he had gotten kicked out of a couple writers groups. Um, the guy's got a got a history that I, <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he's uh, it was an interesting conversation too when we uh, talked a little bit about workshop and censorship, because if anyone knows Chuck's stuff, he, he, I don't know if you know this JD, but he is, uh, he's sort of notorious for getting people to pass out at his live readings <laughs> because, really? Oh yeah. Uh, I think guts is the one where the most, that short story, which I think published in playboy magazine in the early two thousands, when he reads that live, people pass out. It's, it's that graphic. <laughs> And I think that's why he's been kicked out of uh, out of writers groups before. Well, I mean, he seems like he might be slightly opinionated, um, <laughs> but you know, you know, if you're going to have somebody criticize you, that's the guy. You know, yeah. somebody to dig through your your stuff. Did you belong to a writers group? Have you ever tried? I've that? been in and out, but I haven't really stuck with them for very long. Yeah, I haven't either. I think the longest one I was in was um, when we were in Pittsburgh. I was in one for a couple of years, and and I still I follow their email chain and still talk to a lot of them quite a bit. Yeah, um, but I never actually submitted anything to the group. Really? And yeah, I mean it was just such a weird dynamic. I mean because you know. I, even if my agent gives me feedback on stuff, a lot of times I still don't make the change. Like if my yeah. editor tells me it has to be changed, then I'll, I'll do it. Um, but you know, the idea of giving something to a group of people, you know, your peers and, and having them, you know, tear it apart and pick it apart. You know, I, I don't like, I, I never really, you know, it wasn't something that I, I was into. Um, I did like being part of the group. I like being around it. It kind of recharged my batteries um, to be surrounded by, by other writers. But you know, at the same time, you know, like I just, I felt like the only person who could really weigh in is, is the editor. Yeah, I I had a I have a similar I've had similar experiences. I love getting with other writers and generating ideas and doing like a writers room. Like I like that part. The critique part altogether is what I've never really gelled for me. I've found that either everyone starts saying the same thing, or mm -hmm. people have diametrically opposed opinions, and, th and therefore there's not much you can do with that. Well, and they're approaching it as writers, not readers necessarily. That's true and, too. You know, so if I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to put it out there, like I do have beta readers on all of my books, um, but they're for the most part, they're, they're regular readers that are just very critical. Um, and I, I prefer to go that route than, than somebody that, you know, like, I don't think I would take my book to like a, you know, an MFA instructor or, or somebody along those lines. I think they would be too critical or they would dig in just a little too deep. You know, yeah. I, I write literary popcorn. I'm just trying to entertain people. I'm, I'm yeah. not trying to, you know, put a message out there. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, I love to, uh, this is so relevant because most people, if they've never seen or read Fight Club, they know they know the repeating chorus. The first rule of Fight Club, you don't talk about Fight Club. And that might be the best example of a repeating chorus I've, I've ever seen. And that that's one of those little tidbits of advice that's in his new book that really kind of put me back on my heels. And I was like, wow, that is such a great idea. And why am I not doing that more often? <laughs> yeah, I've done it a couple of times. Um, and, and it's definitely, I, I've always called it a callback. I never heard that term before. Okay. But, um, it, I mean, it's all the same kind of thing. And it's, you know, it's again, it's, it's something I stole from Stephen King. He does it in his books too. You know, he's that, got that one little little phrase that he just, you know, goes back and kind of drops it here, drops it there. And it takes you back to a certain place in the book. And it's, you know, it's like an anchor. Um, yeah. And I, I, and I, I think that's huge. I mean, in Fight Club, I mean, that's obviously one of the, the greatest ones I think ever created. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. If listeners are interested, the, the, we'll have a link in the show notes. Chuck's new book is called Consider This, Moments in My Writing Life After Which Everything Was Different. It's his first writing book in a long time, I think the, over 10 years, and it is just full of really great, quirky, esoteric writing tips that you're not going to find anywhere else. I'd highly recommend it. You know, like what to do if your dad hits on one owner rider? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is not a problem I've ever had. No. <laughs> Oh yeah, I, I he he didn't remember it at first, and I, and I can't remember where I found the story, but I heard him tell that story. I'm like, oh, I've got to get him to tell that story on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously not something that happens to a whole lot of people, but I guess when Hunter <laughs> Ryder was up for that uh, the role of um, I forget the the um, was it Marla? Marla, yeah, um, Marla Singer. Yeah, Marla, mm-hmm. yeah, Marla Singer. Um, yeah, and his dad had a crush on her, so he was worried about his dad showing up on the set, um, which is just funny. <laughs> Um, but yeah, then he brought up the uh, the dead parents thing, and I never really yes. thought about it. But he brought up that in a lot of Disney, you know, things, one of the parents has, has passed away, and I, I never thought of it until he brought it up. And he's, you know, he's right. There's actually a lot of them out there, and including your that, new book that I'm reading right my, now. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do it too. Um, and then he mentioned that his father was murdered, which I knew nothing about. Yeah, um, I went back and researched a little bit. Um, so I'm. You know, the psychologist in me is like, well, maybe that's what got him to start thinking about this. And then that led to this and then that led to that. And, you know, all of a sudden it's a, it's a writing tip. Um, but it, it is it's one of those things that, you know, it, it creates a dynamic in the story where I think people can automatically relate to the child um, and, and, you know, kind of bring them into that, that person's life, you know, very easily. And it's, yeah. um, you know, because everybody suffered loss, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. And we didn't get to talk too much about it in the interview, but he's, he was a uh, Tom Spambauer student and, and that, um, that writing group, uh, as you were mentioning earlier, you know, a lot of great writers came out of that. So it almost felt to me like a, like a scene, the way musicians have a scene in a particular city in a particular time. Uh, Tom Spambauer's group kind of felt like a, a writer scene in a, in a strange sort of way. Yeah. Um, and he had brought up, um, I don't know if he actually talked about it on the in the interview, but he was actually part of a society that was similar to Fight Club, um, something cacophony. I forget the, mm. the exact name, but if you go to his Wikipedia page, it's on there. Um, and, and if you start picking through Chuck's history, you see where a lot of the little things that ended up in the book, you know, came from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was great. It was excellent to have him on there. Super guy. I hope everyone goes and, and checks out his book. And uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Which sets us up for next week. We have another great guest lined up. Uh, who's that going to be? We've got Blake Crouch. Blake Crouch, yes. Yeah, Blake. Blake is um. He's. I, I first read um, Pines. I think that was the first one that I read from him on that that series. And then uh, Dark Matter was phenomenal. Yep. I, and I'm just about done with with uh, Recursion right now. 
Um, I've got like, I think, I think I'm at like 94% or something on the Kindle. So I'm right there at the end. Um, and, I, and I'm like, I'm reading this book and it's a, you know, it's a time travel story. Um, it's crazy intricate. And I'm just picturing Blake's house and like all the post-it notes and things that must've been, you know, like, I bet you, you couldn't even walk in his office. He probably had paper like on the floor and strings, you know, going from here to that, just to try and keep it all straight. Um, but I'm really hoping that somebody is, is making that into a movie or a TV show because it is it's like the perfect, perfect piece of material for that. Well, I, I'm going to ask him about it uh, when we talk, but uh, I believe that uh, it's in Netflix has it. And I think Shonda Rhimes is attached to it. So it could okay. be a quite a an incredible production if it, if it ends up uh, going that way. Yeah, absolutely. Fingers crossed that it happens. Yeah. Yeah, so exciting. So we'll be back uh, with uh, next week with, with Blake Crouch, and it'll be another fun interview. So uh, until then, man, have a great uh, week of writing, and I'll see you next week. All right, you too. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.